want to see more of him and his ways throughout this world. And because we love our neighbors, we want, and we know that life with God is the best life a person can live, we want them to be brought into this life. So we are to go. We are to make disciples. We are to bring them into this family, and we are to teach them so that the ways of the kingdom, so that the kingdom spreads. And what are we to teach them? We're to teach them the contents of all that is founded in the great commandments. So we have this mission, this mission that animated Paul. What's interesting is, unlike the great commandment, this is not something that is eternal. This is time-bound. In the next age, I don't see how we'll be making disciples. I mean, Jesus even phrases it, I will be with you to the end of the age. This is an instruction from the point when Jesus gives it through till when he returns. Making disciples and then teaching them to obey all that he commanded. In the next age, he will be the light that illuminates all things. We'll have a law written on our hearts. Sin will be finally put away. We won't need to be teaching everyone to obey all that he commanded. So unlike with the great commandment, we don't have something that is getting to the, nat the fundamental nature of what we're meant to do. We have more of like a wartime instructions. As Terry pointed out, we are in a war. This is a wartime application. And after the war is done, it doesn't apply. But what are we meant to, to do? The way that you can say in a war, when they were doing bombings, they had to black out their windows at night. They had to turn their lights off so that the bombers couldn't see in World War II where the city was, made it harder to bomb. That did not continue on after the war was done. But it was founded in this desire to, as a people, continue to live and flourish. So you have an instruction for the wartime that's founded in a deeper understanding of what we're trying to accomplish. What is the deeper thing that was trying to accomplish the great commandment is pointing towards? What Terry read and helpfully noted as the beginning of the gospel instructions is the call of Abraham. It's, you can basically go from Matthew all the way back to Genesis 12, so it's pretty much this entire rest of the Bible almost. It's coming out of Genesis 3 through 11, which is the world basically just circling the drain after the fall. You get uh, husband and wife turning each other, brother kills brother, and then a guy appears who collects multiple wives and basically brags that the guy who only killed his brother is a ninny, and then you see that God can't even wipe it out through a flood. He can't take one, he takes one faithful family and brings it down to just one set of people, and you would think this would go well now, but it goes well for about eight hours. And then in this story peaks with Babel, where you get at the same time, a vision of the oppression that man was going to be capable of when we work together, and also an idea of why man cannot work together. And it leads to a point where you're wondering what on earth can be done to solve this situation. It has to be something big, something massive, like just angels coming down and like whipping people as they move across the field, something that hasn't been tried before. And instead, he calls one man and his wife, and he tells them to go to another land, that he will make them into a nation, and that through them, he will bless all the nations. 
Once again, we see people who are called to go, who are called to multiply, and who are called to be vehicles through which God's blessing is spread. The next section of the Old Testament focuses primarily on the first two. Abraham and his descendants are very concerned with this land and getting to it, and Abraham himself is very concerned with having a child. And the promise is given again and again, I'm going to make you more numerous than the stars in the sky, and Abraham's going, there's currently one of me. Right now, this is ending with me. And eventually a child's born, and it does. He becomes a nation. And it isn't until the nation is established and the king is established that this second, this third idea of being a blessing starts to really work itself back into the story through the latter prophets and the psalmists who tie it into another king coming of this line of David who will be anointed and who will bring a kingdom rule to these nations that will bless them. That anointed king comes through to be Jesus, to bring his reign to this world and be the vehicle of blessing. But we see in the call of Abraham and the Great Commission, there is a call to go, there is a charge to multiply, and there is a charge to bring the kingdom reign. Which is to say we see a pattern. We see a pattern of the same thing that seems to be applied temporally. And the same reason we can assume from a multitude of Commandments around loving God and a multitude of commands about how we care for each other, there might be something fundamental undergirding all of this. The challenge is we have wartime instructions in a book that is almost entirely in the war. The fall happens at the start of chapter 3. So we get two chapters prior to the fall. And it pretty much gets wrapped up in Revelation 20. So we get about a chapter and a half after. The rest of it is pretty much all wartime mission. But we can look at that section in the end and see if we see something that matches this pattern, to see if there's some idea of what our ultimate purpose is, what we were made to be, of which the great commandment shows the current expression. Now, Revelation is apocalyptic language. Um, it's kind of dangerous to take it overly literal. Um, N.T. Wright, in one of his books, talks about how it's language similar to if you read in a newspaper, I think in 1989, that the Berlin Wall had fallen and it was an earth-shattering event. None of us are actually reading that thinking, I bet there's a fissure in the earth somewhere because the Berlin Wall fell. We know that what it means is there is an event that has happened that has so reshaped the earth that its ramifications are felt everywhere. That's how the language of Revelation works. It's this vivid language that's pointing to realities that are just almost too grand for words. So it has this image of the city coming down from heaven, and we see a connection of heaven and earth in a new creation. And that gets to the final chapter of the whole Bible, Revelation 22. This is verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of, that, of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads 
and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I mean, it's a pretty stunning picture. You've got a throne with a crystal clear river pouring out from it. Down a street, you just picture crisp, clear water with this tree of life on its side that's always bearing fruit. You get the feeling of the flourishing that will exist in the next age with these leaves that will cure and heal all the wounds of the nations. What I want us to focus in, because we're talking about what we're going to do, is what do we do in this? It calls out two things that we'll be doing. We'll be worshiping and we'll be reigning. I think worshiping is actually easier for us to get our heads around. I mean, the popular image of the afterlife is um, usually a chubby guy on a cloud with little wings and a harp. We can picture this worshiping forever. Chad's songs helpfully repeated that concept. We will sing this hallelujah forever and ever. We will worship forever. That love of God we have will find expression in our words and our actions forever. Reigning can be a bit of a stretch. But it has this image, if it means anything, other than us just basically being like a kid who's doing nothing, it has an image of us reigning with God, of us being vehicles through which his reign is extended in the new creation. That we don't just sit there in eternal nirvana bliss, but that we have something we're doing. There's a work that we still have to do. It's not a work that's marred by sin. It's not a work that is painful. It's not a work that is often fruitless. It's not a work that is prone to going awry. But it is simply continuing to extend God's reign. And by that, I don't mean that he isn't in charge of these areas, but to show what that reign looks like as we build buildings, as we gather together, as we have feasts, as we are his people building a culture in a new age that reflects who he is. And it's hard to say what that's going to be like, and I'm speaking with as much caution as I can, because there is a point at which the next age is both going to be continuous with this and also very foreign. You see it in Jesus' resurrected body, which was physical enough that you could touch it, he could eat fish, and he looked like enough like Jesus that people recognize that there's a continuity here. And he also was different enough that people didn't always recognize him as Jesus, and he could teleport. And I think that's just scratching the surface of what's different. So I don't know what it's going to be like, but it does seem like there's still something we are doing in terms of extending God's rule, which means there is a going there, even if it's simply through, I don't know, magically willing. But there's some sense we are going to touch other reaches of this creation with God's reign. Again, we see that pattern kind of replicated. I have no idea how multiplying shows up here. We might finally be done multiplying. The other thing we see in this passage, and it's in verse 3, there were no longer will there be anything accursed. Now, there's plenty cursed in this world, and that's a good news right there, but this is definitely referencing one specific set of curses. Because after Adam and Eve screw things up, and well, to be fair, I would have done the same, 
But after that happens in the fall, three curses are given. The snake is cursed, the man is cursed, and the woman are cursed. We'll ignore the snake for right now, but the woman is cursed and the childbirth will be painful. And the man is cursed in that his toil will be hard. Work will now be challenging and often fruitless. By the sweat of your brow, you'll bring forth fruit from the ground. Now, why did God choose those two things? We can't, again, use your imagination. He could have chosen anything to be cursed. You will no longer have your large toes. Running's out. Sorry, Miles. There's all sorts of things that he could have cursed, yet he chose those two things. Was it just random? No. God is a better storyteller than that. And we can see why he chose these. If we flip all the way to the other end of the Bible, in Genesis 1, to the other section that exists now prior to that, the war we're in, and this is in verse 26. This is after God has made everything else. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's created this earth, and he's placed it in a garden. That happens actually at the start of chapter 2, which these two kind of run in parallel. He places a garden. And all of our kids' Bibles do us a disservice here because it makes it so you picture the whole earth as the, the garden. When the image is given, it's essentially he plants a garden in the earth, and he places a man and a woman in it. There's a whole lot of temple imagery here that we won't get into, but he places a man and a woman in it, and he gives them a charge. They are to fill the earth... They are to multiply, and they are to subdue it and have dominion. Which is to say, they are to go into the earth, because you can't fill it without leaving the garden. They are to multiply, to make more of themselves, more image bearers of God, and they are to bring God's order. They are to extend this good order of the garden such that all of creation knows what it's like to be shaped by God. Now, creation doesn't live in a sinful relationship with God. It's not bad in that manner, but it is something that God has given us to continue shaping, to continue extending his creative work on this earth. He's given us, so he's given this charge to these people that they are to make more of themselves leaving this garden, and the garden just spreads over the earth until it consumes the whole of the earth, and the whole earth reflects God's order and the beauty he's brought into it. We shouldn't see subduing here as something like we, how we subdue now, which is to put a uh, parking lot down. This is bringing an order to the earth that actually works with the earth and is a beautiful garden in which everyone can live and flourish and walk with God in good relationship. And then chapter 3 happens and we get the rest of the book. But at this point, you can see the things that get cursed here. They can still go. But now multiplying is painful and hard and fraught with risk. And work is now toil. This bringing order to the earth, this creating culture is now toil. These, this original instructions given to mankind as God's image bearers are referred to as the cultural mandate. 
because that's what it's doing. It's going forth, making more of us, covering this earth, and building culture. The culture we were meant to build reflects God. The culture we currently build generally does not. And we are meant to multiply and fill the earth with people who bear God's image, but because of the fall, we multiply and fill the earth with other fractured individuals who sometimes give glimmers of it, but oftentimes just don't. So we see that same pattern. Go, multiply, and work God's kingdom into this world. Bring his good order to bear. Be vehicles of him working everywhere you go. <coughs> Excuse me. Abe's call. Abe's call. Somebody didn't say. Abe's call. Abraham's call. Uh, it's Abram, Abraham, it's too convenient. He's always Abe in my notes. He's Abraham, he's Abraham and Satan always ends up as Stan. Don't know what to do there. Um, sorry, completely off topic. But Abraham's call and the Great Commission are both essentially temporal applications of this general purpose that mankind has. It tells us, given where they are now, what their version of going is going to look like, what their version of multiplying is going to look like, and what their version of being a vehicle of God's good work on earth is going to look like. Jesus himself sees this. Remember, he is the, he shows this, sorry. Remember, he is the son who is sent. He's a son who sends and gathers disciples to himself. He's one who comes reflecting God's kingdom in the way he teaches, in his miracles, in all of his acts up to breaking the chains of Satan, sin, and death upon the cross. Which is to say, he goes, he multiplies by bringing people through a new birth by the seed of his word, and he continues his reign. He expands his reign in this world. Why? Well, because it needed to happen, but also because it is what a person's meant to do. He shows a per what God has made people to do. He shows it applied to a specific way in a manner that none of us can touch. But it's still, Jesus comes. He's fully God and fully man doing what men were made to do. And he sees it through to the cross. And he's resurrected. And then he goes. And he gives this purpose to be applied one more time. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Multiply, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, teaching them to follow the ways of the kingdom. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. We have our orders. We've all been commissioned into this. And this is the mission of the church, full stop. It's the mission of our church. It's what we are meant to do. We are meant to, be going, we are meant to go into the world, and we do a pretty decent job of that. We are meant to make disciples. We are really good at making disciples naturally. 
Um, very fertile group. We are not that great in making disciples amongst other adults in the world. I am terrible at it. But it's, it is a, not a strength, and it's a place we need to grow in as a church because it's what we have been called to do. And we are to teach them, and we are to teach one another Jesus' commandments. We are to teach them and encourage them and encourage one another to obey all that he commanded. Now, it can feel, if we tighten down the church's mission to just that, it can feel like all we become about is evangelism and missions, and that's it. And the church stops caring about anything else. But we have to see how this ties into that cultural mandate. Because in teaching people to obey all that God commanded, we are teaching a people who have been transformed by his spirit how to properly fulfill the cultural mandate. We are teaching people how to multiply and raise children to better reflect God's image. We are teaching people how to go into this world to subdue it and have dominion, to bring a good order as opposed to a fractured one. We're teaching people how to make movies, how to write songs, how to, to use the example everybody uses of me, to make Excel spreadsheets. We're teaching people how to raise their children, how to order their house, how to cook meals. It's a cultural, cultural building. The church should exist as a different culture from the rest of the world around it. Not because the church itself is setting down rules and regulations, because the church is about going into the world, making disciples, and teaching them to obey Jesus' commands. But that, in every place it shows up, is going to have a way of exhibiting who God is as we go forward in this world and make a culture. People should be able to come into this community and see something different. Not merely in this Sunday meeting, but in each aspect of our lives. We should be looking at everything we do, every decision we make, every choice that falls before us, and say, what should we be doing here that would reflect the great commandment? as people who have been transformed by Jesus, who love God with all that we are, who know that our treasure exists with him and that there's nothing in this world that should hold us so tight. We should be people who look at this world the way Paul does and go, that's my best end. There's nothing else I can hold on to here. There's nothing else that should be limiting to me that would prevent me from loving someone else as myself. And that's what we're looking to examine through the rest of this series. We want to take various aspects and look at what does it mean to live like Jesus? What does it mean to love God with all that we are in this aspect of life or in that aspect of life? What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself, even when my neighbor is my enemy? We want to consider those things. I don't have the answers for what the image of God looks like brought to bear on every situation, nor does Terry, nor does anyone. But as a church, it's something we should be endeavoring to find out and to grow in so that in what we do, we better reflect the one who made us and the one who called us, the one who saved us, and the one who is with us now and always. 
So hear these words and hear them applied to you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.